This is The Guardian. Just before we begin, this is a podcast series about stalking and some people might find parts of it difficult to listen to. In episode three, we return to Northwich to try and find out more about who Matthew is. This man who weaves a web of fake profiles, bombarding his victims with messages and calls, day and night, for years on end. But now, it's all caught up with Matthew. Chester Crown Court, 26th of January, 2022. As soon as I got into the court, it was like, he's there, his family are there. Like, it was all, like, all, everything at once. I remember looking at his face and just thinking, I can't believe that you've done it for so many years. I remember at one point when I was standing there, I was like, I don't know if I can do it. Because it was like all the emotion from the last three years was in, in one day. This time, Leah's not holding her enormous yellow folder. She's standing before the court, telling it what Matthew did to her. It makes me feel teary, but I also feel quite proud, like... And Matthew's in the dock. I remember at one point I thought, I'm going to look at you and I'm going to read it to you so you know exactly what I'm saying. When I quoted the messages that he said about good luck proving who I am, I thought... I looked at him and I thought, yes, we've proved who you are. And, yeah, he kept his head down for the entire time. There were other victims there, like Sabrina. They're waiting to give their testimony, watching and supporting each other. They want their lives back. They want Matthew to stop. It felt good knowing that he was going to get justice, but it was nerve-wracking thinking, you know, that's him. And PC Kevin Anderson is in the gallery as well, He's worried about this day for months. I was staying up at night thinking, could I do more? You know, I had a lot of sleepless nights. My partner would tell you that. I just wanted to make sure that whatever I did, it was going to be enough. Matthew's mother, Donna, is also there, supporting her son. They're in court to watch Matthew be sentenced. For everyone, this has been a long journey. So many years... And so many women. 63 victims known to Cheshire Police. Over 100 reports, 10 arrests, 2 restraining orders. A decade of stalking and harassment. Matthew can't outrun it anymore. He's pled guilty. But he still needs to be sentenced. And for his victims, the length of that sentence matters. Because nothing has ever made Matthew stop before. Not restraining orders, not police visits. Even when he was on court bail, awaiting the 2022 trial, he found new people to stalk. His victims, they believe that the only way to end the torment is prison. So how long Matthew spends behind bars, that's how long they might get away from him. But what happens on this day in January shocks everyone. From The Guardian, 
I'm Shirin Kale, and you're listening to Can I Tell You a Secret? Episode 4. A Reckoning. Outside the imposing facades of Chester Crown Courts, the light is already fading by 4pm. A group of women approach each other, warily at first. Um, and that was when I met them for the first for the first time. But I've, but we spoke on message, like they've messaged and said, like night we've said nice messages to each other. And like one of one of the girls, she lives up in North. She said like I feel so connected to you. Like if you ever need me for anything, I'm here. And I was like, oh my god, the same for you. They trade stories about their shared stalker. That obviously made us laugh a bit when we were sat in the waiting room to go in because they were exactly the same thing. It's always, can I tell you a secret? And that was like, that obviously made us laugh a bit. Because Matthew was pled guilty to five counts of stalking and one count of breach of a restraining order, Leah and the other victims whose cases have made it to court have been spared a full trial. Of the many people who contacted the police, there were five cases, including Leah's, that form the basis of the indictment. Additionally, there are four other cases, one of which is Sabrina's case, that are being taken into consideration. And it's important to point out there are also many other complainants, including women we've spoken to, like Andrea, Abby, Amy and Amber, who aren't included in that case. I could only use five because the evidence we had in those five was that strong that we're not giving them any wiggle room in court. But despite all of this evidence, for the prosecution, the outlook for his sentence isn't good. Even though in England and Wales around one and a half million people will experience stalking in a year, as we know, just 0.1% of cases will end in a conviction. Most daughters only ever spend a few weeks in jail, if that. Before handing down his sentence, Judge Stephen Everett listens to impact statements from Matthew's victims and reviews evidence from Matthew's legal team. The team aren't claiming that Matthew is innocent, remember. He's pled guilty to all the charges. But they are presenting evidence for the judge to take into account and they're hoping that evidence will cause the judge to reduce his sentence. Our producer, Lucy Hoff, has been looking at the arguments that were made by the defence in court. OK, so Lucy, tell me about that day. What happened? So Matthew's being represented by a barrister who is addressing the judge and summarising a bundle of documents that will have been submitted to him in advance. So that includes various medical documents, reports, a psychiatric assessment of Matthew and a letter from his mum, Donna. Now, the judge will have had the chance uh, in the weeks prior to this hearing to evaluate all that documentation, but he'll he'll then be listening to these arguments from, from Matthew's legal team. What's Matthew's legal team saying? What what case are they making to the court? Well, their argument is essentially about a young man who's struggling with his mental health, who's been diagnosed with anxiety, who, in addition to that, is also diagnosed autistic. And as a result of all, all of that, is struggling with loneliness and isolation. His lawyers are saying that mm. through this way of communicating with people online, he was really trying to make friends in the only way that he knew how to do. That's 
really interesting because we know Matthew is someone who seems to be lonely just from what we've learned about him, right? Yeah. You know, the neighbours, for example, saying there were hardly any visitors to him and his classmates at school saying that he seemed to be alone most of the time. So that's kind of fitting in with what we know about Matthew. What else are they saying? Yeah, they also say that Matthew was, in addition to that loneliness, that isolation, he was also struggling with issues of abandonment and rejection. Mm. In her submission, his barrister says that Matthew really wanted to live what she describes as a full and happy life, that he would go online and look at people who were living the types of life that he wanted, that he would seek to make a connection, so he would reach out with this, hello, can I tell you something? When he didn't get the reaction that he wanted, he would take that as a rejection that would then trigger what his lawyer describes as a lashing out. And she says that Matthew wouldn't necessarily understand the impact that that lashing out would have on his victims. I think that's something that many of Matthew's victims would absolutely dispute, of course. What else are they arguing? Yeah, and his lawyers also say that Matthew has a degree of immaturity that means that prison wouldn't necessarily be the right place for him. So perhaps another type of solution should be found, whether it's some sort of supported living or another solution in the community. So the defence is saying Matthew doesn't understand the impact of what he's doing, so the judge should basically be more lenient with him. And how does that work in terms of sentencing? Is that something that the judge can actually do? Yeah, so each offence for stalking and harassment is divided into culpability and then harm. So on the part of the prosecution representing the victims, they are arguing that Matthew's culpability is right at the top of the scale, given that the lives of multiple women were ruined. As far as Matthew's team are concerned, they are arguing before the judge that because of Matthew's complex needs, the fact that he's autistic, the fact that he's struggling with his mental health, that he has a learning disability, that that should bring him down the scale and that he should be put into a lower category when it comes to culpability. They're not under any illusions that he's going to get away without a sentence, given that he's already pled guilty. He does automatically, as a result of that guilty plea, get 25% off his sentence. But his legal team are saying that there should be a further reduction because of that complex picture when it comes to his specific needs. The experts who wrote those reports couldn't speak to us directly because of patient confidentiality, but I wanted to understand more about these connections that are being mentioned between autism and culpability. So autism is a disability that starts very early, possibly prenatally, and it changes brain development. Professor Sir Simon Baron-Cohen is the director of the Autism Research Centre at Cambridge University. And the way it's diagnosed is that when the child or adult is showing social difficulties and communication difficulties, uh, alongside very narrow interests sometimes called obsessions, and also a strong preference for routines and predictability. These obsessions can, and I really want to stress here, this is extremely rare, but they can sometimes manifest in fixated behaviour or even cross the line into stalking. Um, but, we, you know, 
I think I think the risks of of stigmatizing autistic people are very great. So we really need to kind of discuss this carefully and to remind listeners that the majority of autistic people do not get involved in in criminal behavior. The majority of stalkers are not autistic, but being autistic might predispose you to sort of higher risk of some forms of stalking and really important to underline this it's going to be only in a tiny percentage of autistic people and it may not be in a cruel way it may just be in an obsessive way that the person becomes fascinated by another person wants to know everything about them simon can't talk about matthew directly as he wasn't involved in the case but he's led new research into how autistic people are treated in the criminal justice system it's important to say right at the outset that most autistic people um, are not involved in criminal behavior. Uh, autistic people can understand what's right and wrong, and they can understand uh, rules and when rules are being broken. So we shouldn't sort of think of autism as a kind of um, a defense uh, against culpability in, you know, in the sense of forming an intention. But there are some people, autistic people, who who do commit crimes. They do cross the line. And, you know, that's often because uh, they don't realize that there is a line or that they have become so immersed in a particular activity that they've lost sight of how their behavior might be seen by others. Remember that the experience of being autistic varies hugely from one person to the next. There's a danger when talking about Matthew being autistic or the experience of autistic people in the criminal justice system that we generalise that experience. Matthew is Matthew and his experience will be unique and his being autistic is only a part of the picture. Nonetheless, Simon has some recommendations on how cases involving autistic people could be better handled. It should go almost without saying that judges should take autism into account if, um, if the, the defendant in front of them is autistic. So it's not as if we're saying that autism is a get-out-of-jail card. But I think autism can be thought of as a, a mitigation or a defense in terms of you know how much were they aware of the risks that they were taking. They might have lost sight of that. Um, of the impact on other people. I think that's the kind of nuance. It's not that they they can't sort of understand, for example, how to log into the internet and how to use computers. But the social side might be their area of particular vulnerability, Uh, not, not appreciating, for example, the relationships that they're getting into. I know you don't want to comment on Matthew's case specifically, but Speaking generally, Matthew's victims often say that they feel like he enjoyed making them suffer. You know, he would taunt them and say, you're never going to get me. I'm never going to stop. And it feels to me that one way of looking at that is to think that possibly Matthew struggles to understand their distress or their emotions. And I was wondering if there's any truth to that. Would it be fair to say that perhaps... In those situations, Matthew simply couldn't understand the harm he was causing to other people through his actions. Yeah, and I think we have to be very careful about sort of not generalising too much about, you know, empathy in autistic people. 
But for most autistic people, once it's pointed out to them that the other person is unhappy or distressed or in pain or whatever, they the, the last thing they want to do is is hurt hurt somebody. They 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 act in ways just like the rest of us of wanting to alleviate other people's distress. Simon is an expert on the science of autism, but there's something he can't speak to, what it's like to be autistic. You can't talk about a group of people without involving them. We know what it's like to be autistic. Non-autistic people do not know what it's like to be autistic. I really want us to pause for a second to discuss something important, which is that there's no way to report Matthew's story without mentioning the fact that he's autistic. But we also don't want to feed into a damaging narrative that links autistic people to crimes like his. So we've been working with Autism Rights Group Highland, an advocacy group run for and by autistic people. Kaby Brook, who uses the pronouns they, them, is a representative of the group and they're autistic. I wanted to know what it feels like when KB sees cases like Matthew's on the news. Immediately, I think, oh my goodness, here we go again. All of the negative stereotypes are going to be rolled out and the media is going to think that we're all like this person who has maybe done a terrible thing and all of the things that drive us down or kind of squish us down within society. It's all going to be laid out there. Kaby joined me along with fellow campaigner Graham Thompson-Gold. He also gets that sinking feeling when an autistic person hits the headlines. So the bingo card is always things like, you know, you wait to hear things like the quiet, shy one or the neighbour said they were, you know, always quiet. Um, kept themselves to themselves, um, all of these kind of things. And then uh, often you'll fall into the, well, they didn't know what they were doing or the didn't know any better. You know, it's it's a whole collection of things. And so there's definitely all these autistic stereotypes, right? There's the genius computer hacker and the sort of shy loner introvert Um I guess what I wanted to ask you about is how should we address the fact that Matthew did seem to fit into one of those stereotypes? I know you were talking earlier about how um, it's always the same kind of reporting, which is, you know, they were quite shy and kept themselves to themselves. And that does seem to be the case. That is that is what Matthew was like, according to pretty much everybody in his life. How should we approach that respectfully whilst also being accurate to the truth? But nobody knows if that's because he's autistic. Mm. I know plenty of autist, eh, non-autistics who, you know, played games until they were three o'clock in the morning when they were 20 years old. OK, so what you're saying is don't assume that an aspect of someone's personality is solely derived from the fact that they're autistic. Exactly. There's a particular narrative that Graham and KB both talk about, which is the idea that all autistic people are childlike and not able to understand what they're doing. Yeah, I mean, that's that's something that <laughs> is an everyday thing. Um, you know, an, an example would be I go into the hospital, my husband says to the, the person at the window, 
um, as we're checking in, you know that I'm autistic. And from that point onward, the person at the window doesn't even look at me or ask me questions. I'm still there. I'm not a child. But and it happens all the time. And so that sense of basically being made childlike or being perceived as a community of people who don't understand what they're doing, that's, that's why stories like Matthew's can be quite jarring to hear about because it's feeding into this narrative that yep. you don't have agency in your own lives. That's exactly it. The, the other thing about it is, you know, presuming that we all have diminished responsibility, diminished culpability. I think a lot of the time it's criminal trials and someone's bringing up their autistic as a defence, which, you know, sometimes is appropriate. Or it's <laughs> inspiration porn. It's, oh, look at this amazing thing that someone's done and they're autistic. So, of course, some autistic people will do bad things. We're a cross-section of community. If that was accepted, totally, that's just some autistic people and actually it's the same as the rest of the community, then that would be probably when we get parity or when, when we get equality, because we don't have equality. We'll be back to the court case right after this. In Chester Crown Court, the judge feeds the defence reports. And there's the victim impact statements. Leah walks to the front of the courtroom. I honestly couldn't see the paper at one point because I was actually physically shaking and crying because that was the first time I've seen him. And I'm not a nervous person, like, I never have been, but he made me feel like a nervous person. She takes a deep breath and starts reading out her statement. I would just like to say that this person has ruined my life since November 2019. I live in constant fear that a disgruntled person may take their anger out on me directly. This business relies entirely upon social media, as do other sources of my work, so I cannot My whole life has been a living nightmare since November 2019. I'm not sure how much longer that I can cope with the constant distress and harassment. Will this ever stop? Or how can I make it stop? By taking myself out of the equation. These are not thoughts that I should be having as a 22-year-old person. It feels cathartic to get it all out. But Leah also had to listen to Matthew's defence. His lawyers have framed him, or tried to frame him in quite a sympathetic light. You know, like, they've talked about how he was bullied at school and he has all these conditions. And is there any part of you that feels sorry for him? No, not at all. Because there's, like I said at the start, there's thousands of people that have problems going on in their lives. There's... Loads of people get bullied at school. Like, doesn't it's that's not an excuse for your behaviour. And my thing is, like, you even get arrested for it, and he still carried on. So he knew what he was doing was wrong. Sabrina, who'd been stalked by Matthew after meeting him through her aunt, also speaks that day. 
and that was like nerve-wracking, you know, nearly fell off my chair going to sit, <laughs> to sit down. And at the whole time, I thought he would look up and, like, probably say, you know, I'm sorry, but he, he never did. He had his head down. And after hearing it all, the judge leaves the court to consider his sentence. Um, he went out and then he came back in and said, right, everyone stand up, or Matthew stand up. Judge Stephen Everett starts to speak. Oh, my God. Like, obviously, burst into tears. I was gobsmacked. And he delivers his sentence. I thought he was going to get, like, a few months. But he didn't. Matthew got years. Nine years. Nobody was expecting that. It's believed to be the longest ever sentence given to a cyberstalker in a UK court. For context, the average prison sentence for a stalker in 2020 was just 13 and a half months. It was like, do you know what? Actually, someone has listened. Like, finally, all these hours, days, weeks, months of living nightmare, it's, it's, it's over. Like, it's, it's finally done. We've done it. It was a sense of relief. Happiness, in a way, even though, obviously, it wasn't a happy day, but for us girls, like, it was like the torment is over. The judge doesn't seem convinced by Matthew's defence. Here's Lucy Hoff again. Yeah, this statement is really emphatic. He says, In my judgement, your responsibility was not substantially reduced by your mental disorder. Your mental disorder had placed you in a position where you were isolated and lonely. I accept that entirely, but it didn't reduce your responsibility. Matthew knew, says the judge in his sentencing remarks, what he was doing would cause harm. This was not just lashing out by some person of limited mental ability. This was careful thought given to the sort of harm that you could create and the greatest harm that you could create by careful thought and planning. Matthew wanted to hurt people, says the judge. He says you did it out of spite because they had lives that you did not. What a terrible thing to do. He goes on, you were a jealous individual who wanted to have something that they had and when you couldn't have it, you decided to lash out at them. The stalking, he says, was highly sophisticated and designed to cause chaos. You affected their lives, in my judgment, in every possible way and truly awfully in every possible way, socially, personally, in their close personal relationships and in their employment, in their efforts to make their way in life, and you did everything you could to affect them. The judge also believes there's another victim here, Donna, Matthew's mum. He says... Your mother, in a sense, as I see it, is a victim too, in the sense that she has been affected, but as by nothing compared to that of the victims on the indictment. But despite his strong words, the judge did give Matthew a reduction on his sentence. 25% off for making an early guilty plea and for his mental health conditions and learning disability. What was that day like? It, 
it was just amazing the way that all came together. The, the, the victims made that case. The victims made that case. It, you know, to see them laughing, crying, a mixture of different emotions, uh, you know, uh, it's hard. It's hard because, you know, I've spoken to these people, I've got to know their mums and their dads because of what's been going on. That case helped me to understand a bit more about myself, to be more empathetic, to listen more to people. It, 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 the celebrations were a bit of trepidation, really, because the trauma hasn't stopped for them. Do you know what I mean? They, they've, they've got a bit of closure, but they'll never get full closure on it. You know, and not even I can close that door. Yeah, I, I mean, I get emotional talking about it now, really. Um, the oh, stop a sec. Give me a sec. Oh, I didn't think this would happen. Outside the courtroom, it's already getting dark. Local news crews rush to report the verdict. In their reports, they suggest that social media companies need to do more to crack down on online stalking and harassment. Welcome to Northwest Tonight, our top story. Sentenced to nine years in jail, the online stalker whose victims lived in fear. The judge at Chester Crown Court criticised the role of the social media companies. Also tonight... It's true that Matthew was able to use a veil of online anonymity to target his victims by assuming people's identities and harassing people through the major social media platforms, Instagram, Facebook and WhatsApp. And maybe... If social media companies had an obligation to do more to tackle stalking and harassment, he wouldn't have been able to target so many victims. The government is planning to introduce an online safety bill which would tighten the legislation around online harassment and stalking. But the fact also remains that Matthew's crimes were illegal under existing legislation. And as Kevin said, not particularly difficult to investigate. Matthew hardly made an effort to cover his tracks. Remember, he sometimes even told his victims who he was. As the journalists finish their reporting a few feet away, Kevin and the victims are hugging and celebrating. The sentence, it feels like a triumph posing for pictures arm in arm Kevin in the middle the victims on the side it's over but Matthew's sentence the court case the conviction it's like a Rorschach test one of those dark inky blots you can see both ways yes it is a victory for Kevin who worked so hard to bring Matthew to justice and for his victims who finally got it to stop. At the same time, it is a colossal failure. And that's because it took so long to put Matthew behind bars. Cheshire police knew about him in 2011. He was arrested more than 10 times. 63 people logged over 100 reports about him. And that's just in Cheshire. Matthew's victims also went to the police in Kent, 
Sussex, Manchester, Wiltshire and Lincolnshire and those are just the victims we know about. His phone number was looked up on that prank caller website thousands of times. We'll never know how many victims Matthew had. Why weren't the victims taken seriously enough? Why did the police allow Matthew to get away with it for so long? I can tell from talking to you how strongly you feel about what Matthew did to his victims. Is it difficult knowing it took so long, though? That does feel to me like a little bit of a failure, and I wonder how you feel about that and whether you wish that maybe other officers have felt the same way that you did. Yeah, I, I agree with you 100%. I understand where you're coming from, and, 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 and I know the way you've said it is it, probably been a bit kind. But when I looked into... Because I looked at every single job to make sure... I could understand what the victims were going through, what was reported, what evidence there was, and how it was disposed of, how it was completed. And it's up to those officers to justify if they believe they did a good job or not. It's not for me to to, to, to pick any fault with it. I'm putting Kevin in a difficult situation here. Clearly, there were failings in Cheshire Police's response to Matthew's stalking, but that's not on him. And understandably, he's not keen to criticise his colleagues. But one officer who can be more candid as to what might have gone wrong is Philip Grindel. You know, I think think we have to look at stalking and the journey that stalking has gone on. I can remember it was pretty late on in my career before I even heard the word stalking. He's a 30-year veteran of the Metropolitan Police, where he worked as a detective. Philip's now a consultant, advising on high-profile stalking cases, although not on Matthew's case specifically. Um, And it was pretty late on in my career before I had any basic training in stalking. Matthew's victims were all over the country, and that was a problem. So the the first challenge is there's no national database, there's no national crime reporting. Every police force has its own system, and we can't talk to each other. The, the actual intelligence system is so ridiculously antiquated, even when it was brought in, it was rubbish. So we can't, actually, I can't look at intelligence for Manchester when I was in London. So that, you know, we're a small country. We haven't managed to do that. Something I heard over and over again from Matthew's victims was a feeling that police didn't take his crime seriously because they were online. Like when Abby called 10 police terrified Matthew was going to break into our house before I beat the holiday and she says the police said we're about half an hour away from your house do you really think we need to come we think you're fine I think that when they're doing their risk assessment what they're looking at is physical violence and physical threats and I don't think they understand or recognize the the psychological impact that we shouldn't be differentiating cyberstalking from stalking. There's no such thing as cyberstalking because all stalking involves cyberstalking. It almost implies that cyberstalking is a lesser version of stalking. And, and I disagree fundamentally with that. You know, if you're cyberstalking, you get charged with you know, malicious communications. No, no, you're a stalker. The fact you use it, you do it on the internet is neither here nor there. It's kind of crazy to me, but... Prior to 2012, stalking wasn't even its own offence. It was built into other legislation on harassment. The legislation is, everyone will tell you, lawyers, it's it's bloody awful. Um, And I think the problem is it's really poorly written. The legislation of stalking doesn't define what stalking is. 
And then it goes on to talk consistently around harassment. And so I don't think we've got stalking units in the Met and other forces I'm aware of. But even now, I don't think the police recognise stalking for what it is. Too often, I think the Crown Prosecution Service um, and the police allow stalkers to either be charged with or cautioned with harassment. Because that way, um, there doesn't have to be a trial. No one has to give evidence. It's a low cost. He just admits harassment and that's it. And I think that's a real mistake because stalking is always dangerous. It's the very nature of what it is. It really feels that the police failed Matthew's victims, but there's one person who also feels that she has been failed. Someone we haven't spoken to yet. Someone at the centre of all of this and someone I've been wanting to interview for this story. Donna Hardy, Matthew's mum. The only reason why I sort of do this podcast is because I didn't want to, as you know, I don't know whether you're going to edit this out, but I didn't want to, but I just felt that I feel like every man and his dog has had their say about my son and but don't know anything about my son or us as a family. I think we're all partly victims in, in this. We've all, we've all suffered. Donna's never spoken publicly about Matthew, but now she's willing to talk and tell us more about her son. We contacted Cheshire Police for comment. The force acknowledged the deep and lasting distress to Matthew's victims. Whilst his conviction was described as an extremely positive outcome, they apologised to victims who felt they didn't get the service they deserved over the years. Cheshire Police says the officers engaged with Matthew's family and support workers to signpost him to support to reduce the risk of his offending. The force says it now has a dedicated stalking unit with better systems, improved training and better technology. It says that this isn't an issue that police can tackle alone and social media companies need to take more responsibility. Since we started making this podcast, Matthew has been granted permission to appeal his sentence. You've been listening to Can I Tell You a Secret? Episode 5 is ready to listen to now. If you need any support around stalking and harassment, you can get in touch with the Susie Lamplew Trust or call the National Stalking Helpline on 0808 802 0300. Further information can be found on The Guardian's podcast page. We'd like to thank the National Autistic Society and Autism Rights Group Highland for all their help and advice on this series. This is a podcast series from The Guardian. It was made by me, Shirin Kale. The producer is Lucy Hoff. Original music and sound design is by Axel Coutier. The executive producers are Charlotte Pritchard and India Rackerson. The commissioning editor is Nicole Jackson. If you're following the series, do subscribe and leave us a review. Thanks.
This is The Guardian.